I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. When you make a normal shoe, you're cutting a circle out of a square. And so you're leaving 30% of the leather or canvas behind. On this episode, Rothy's president and COO, Carrie Cooper, sits down with the Unfinished Biz team. That's us to talk shoes. But not just any shoes, sustainable shoes. Rothy's shoes are made using a 3D knitting process that drastically reduces waste. And in the last three years, Rothy's has taken more than 30 million plastic bottles headed for landfills and repurposed them into fashionable and durable flats. But as anyone with Carrie's impressive level of business experience will tell you, production ain't easy. Like this thing was going to go, you know, if one in a hundred are bad, it's going to kill the brand. And it wasn't one in a hundred. It was actually more like 10 in a hundred. Find out how Carrie found herself taking the reins at Rothy's after running dramatically different companies, what she and Rothy's founders needed to fix to scale for success and how Rothy's commitment to a better global environment is the driving force behind every decision her team makes today. Unfinished biz starts now. Wayne, this isn't even the first SF-based footwear company that we've spoken about. And yeah. We had Allbirds founder Tim Brown on the show last year. But Carrie's shoe story is a very different one. She's not the founder of the business. She's a business whiz. Uh, and she'd done a lot of things before. Yeah, I mean, she like many successful brands we've had on the show, there's an experienced operator who joins along the way to help drive the next phase of growth. Mm-hmm. One that comes to mind is, uh, is Kevin Cleary from Cliff. For and sure. how... He partnered with Gary and Kit from Cliff Bar to really drive an instrumental phase of the company. Carrie joined us at our VMG offices in San Francisco to share her truly unique personal story. Many of the founders you guys have here are you know, young founders or they're founders who have been at this for many times. My, my journey is probably a little different. I started mm-hmm. working when I was eight. I grew up very poor. Um, I mowed lawns, I babysat, I got my first job at Baskin Robbins at 15. You know, I have done every job you can imagine. Um, and so, you know, choosing to study engineering at Texas was about, hook em. Yeah, hook em horns. <laughs> um, was about getting a job. Like I just need a job where mm-hmm. I can, you know, and so when I graduated, I made 36,500 at McKinsey and it was like the best. Job. I was so rich. I, like, yeah. I don't think I've ever been that rich. Like I shared a, you know, a two bedroom apartment with three girls in Houston for like $230 a month. It's like the greatest time, like richest I probably still have ever been. Um, and so I spent my time of like, how do you work your way yeah. through, um, you know, what, what, where you want to be. Um, I joined, uh, long story, you know, fast forward, um, finished business school, went back to McKinsey. Um, I joined Levi's in 2002. Um, I had a different job every year. And I think part of joining an operating company is figuring out kind of what is it you love to do and how do you do more of it? I read this book, which turned out to be actually um, meaningful, um, like why, why women don't get the corner office. And, um, mm-hmm. one of the things was you don't ask. And so I went and I sat down on my boss's desk and I was like, Hey, I want to run dockers.com as an e-commerce site in 07. And he said, okay. And I was like, one of those like, Oh shoot, like <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> um, but it was a marketing site that we yeah. had. So I launched dockers.com in 07, um, launched stores. And then I just sort of fell in love with e-commerce, um, joined walmart.com in 2008 um, running strategy and biz dev, which was so fun because, you know, at fortune one, like how do you figure out how to build? So I built marketplace, which is the ability for third parties mm-hmm. to sell on Walmart, which was kind of controversial at the time. Um, now is a main part of their business. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Bill Pickup today, which is the ability to buy in-store inventory yeah. online, which is also, you know, required a lot of trips to Bentonville. Mm-hmm. Um, became CMO a little while thereafter. Um, and then I joined uh, ModCloth in 2012, right after we raised our, or 2010, excuse me, right after we raised our Series B. So two founders that were built it out of their dorm room at Carnegie Mellon, um, took you know, money from Excel and moved out here. And, so and how'd that happen? Why, why ModCloth and how did that I think I just fell in love with online and I thought this was like, you know, I loved this world of like, how do you know, what's the growth that we can do? Um, and was that opportunistic or like, had you been looking for, No, it was, it was opportunistic. I think, um, Teresa Ranzetta from then at Excel now at, um, she, you know, was persuasive. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and what an amazing opportunity. That was such a fun business. I was probably, you know, 20 million when I joined, mm-hmm. you know, on the path to 200 when I left, it was a, you know, an amazing growth opportunity. And, you know, you just spend a little time doing that. And you're like, I don't ever want to go back to a big company because what it takes to be successful and what in was, a big company is just so different. What was your role there? I started as CMO, became mm-hmm. COO a couple of months in. Um, so I had kind of everything from, I built merchandising, marketing, um, HR, our warehouse in Pittsburgh, customer care, kind of had everything but dev. Mm-hmm. Um, and finance, and it was um, it was amazing. It was what such did you a fun find to be your biggest? I mean, you you're in large organizations right. going to a startup. What was the what was the biggest surprise of? When you, you know, arrived? I think I was there like three months, and I realized that so much of success at Walmart was about influence and like your ability to convince other people to do things. And I'm good at that, and I don't love doing it. Like it's <laughs> one of the you know it's, it's <laughs> right. you don't know that you, what you don't know until yeah. you do it. Um, it's so much more fun to be able to see the dynamic nature of like, hey, how do we you know mm-hmm. each person you add, what do they do to change the team? Like how do you, you know it, it feels so different to be at a little company than it does to be you know in Fortune One or even a you know big company like Levi's, right? What did you find to be the biggest turning point during the Moncloth journey? Oh, Moncloth was, you know, it was such, um, it was such a great experience. Um, seeing that kind of growth and figuring out, like, you know, all of the ins and outs of, are we going to make payroll and how, <laughs> <laughs> how do you manage inventory? You know, those are those are really hard things of um, that hit you in a very different way when you're leading a, com- a small company than you know you never think about that when you're a big company. Um, and I think every day you worry in a leadership role at a startup of like, where are we going? Are we on the right path? Are we going to, you know, when you raise money, it's with a certain expectation of what's going to come next. Are we on the path to get there? What does that look like? Um, I love that customer. You know, they sort of 18 to 25 year old Mm -hmm. woman. Um, she takes more beautiful photos than I could ever take on my own. Um, she, we launched, you know, 50 to a hundred products a day and um, Mm -hmm. it was just so fun to watch. Like what the response was in four hours with data, you can figure out very quickly what's going to work and what's not going to work. And that kind of responsive supply chain is just amazing to see. And that was the first time that you had the opportunity to work directly with founders, I believe, right? Yeah. Any, any big surprises, anything that you didn't, you didn't expect? No, I think, um, you know, when I, when I joined, I think the founders were 26 and, um, mm-hmm. people, uh, would say like, Oh, you're adult supervision, which I hate. I think there's, <laughs> there's nothing more demeaning yeah. to somebody who's built a business right. and to say For that sure. you need adult supervision. Um, it is hard, right? It's hard mm-hmm. to let go of your baby as a founder. It's hard. You know, they were a married couple. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's an interesting partnership of how do you, how do you manage, um, the direction how things are going and ultimately in my mind founder set culture right um, and so you know you i can play a part in molding it but there's there's always some element of like how do you make that partnership work um and you know eric and susan played very different roles um mm-hmm. at mockloth and it was it was good learning did you find i mean you mentioned the the nature of influence at walmart did you just 
is there are there similarities to how you have to utilize those skills to influence founders towards um, the right direction for the company? Pretty different. I think um, you know, influence in some ways. That, you know, big companies. Can you do a great PowerPoint? Can you convince me? Have I built a good business plan? What does this look like? How do you lay it out? Like how right. do you think about all of it? And you don't really need that when you're thinking with founders. I think um, you know. Every founder is different. Every founder, what they want is unique. What they're good at is unique. And figuring out um, where you can play is sort of the important part. Which sort of I jump forward to Rothy's when I met Roth and Steven. They, you know, we have such different skills. And I think in a lot of ways, I think that's what most founders should be thinking about is like, how do you think about creating a place where you have a balance of who does what and what you, you are you doing more of the stuff that you love to do? Right. And then as the mod cloth journey progressed, were there certain challenges that ever came up or was there, you know, you mentioned that when you bring in investors, there's certain expectations that did you ever find that where there was a disconnect between what, what the investors expected and where mod cloth, where the ceiling may have been or. Yeah, I think if, um, you know, hindsight's 2020 on mm-hmm. everything. So, you know, when mod cloth was built in, you know, 2008, there was no Magento. There was no Shopify. Right, there was right. no, I mean, like it's such Nothing a different world. Shelf. So it's yeah. easy to look back and be like, oh, we overinvested in tech. But we raised money as a tech company and we got value like a tech company and we had engineers like a tech company and mm-hmm. fundamentally we were a justice company. So I think right. there's some disconnect right. about like how much do you want to invest and what does that look like of, I want to get great dresses to her and do it in a way that works. But we had 80 engineers on staff. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. Like the level of investment we made. And so I think, Again, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think we raised too much money, and I think we invested too much money in tech that mm-hmm. probably didn't have the right payback. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think you know, I think there's a, I think there's an error of that, which isn't wasn't limited to just right. mod cloth of what what is a consumer company and what's a tech company, and just because well, consumer company utilizes technology right. doesn't mean it's a right. technology company. It's we still, had cohort models that showed return. I mean, like we, it was easy to look at like why this business right. was like incredibly successful and what it was going to do. The problem is when you put yourself on a treadmill of, okay, if an investor comes in at X valuation and they're expecting, you know, on a series C, they're going to expect right. five X back on that. It puts you on a different revenue path of how do you hold the brand then? Who is she going to, you know, like mm-hmm. what are the growth expectations? Um, and, I think there's a risk, and you know, with anybody raising too much, like it's sort of like you know, it'll yeah. be interesting for us to look back five years from now as I look across sort of my peers now from a direct consumer space of who's raised how much and what are they doing with it, and right, you know, you put yourself in a um, in a challenging position of how do you control um, when you're when you're trying to hit revenue numbers and mm-hmm. you know growth numbers, and do you overinvest in marketing? Do you overinvest in, in acquisition because you need to maintain a growth level for the next round? That I think is risky. It's funny you bring that. I mean, it's one of our favorite topics that we talk about at VMG is because, you know, I think we've, you know, we've taken a much more traditional approach on how you think about not only just um, how to grow a brand, but just what's what's healthy growth for Mm -hmm. to actually build a brand versus build revenue. Mm -hmm. And then what's best for founders and management teams who whose blood, sweat, and tears are going into those businesses, and that capital is all dilutive to them. Mm-hmm. And it, there's this all, it's inter, an interconnectivity to all that where we believe very much so in a much more capital-efficient way, which we think builds lasting brands as opposed to just chasing revenue. And it doesn't have to be multi-billion-dollar outcomes. There's, right. there's great brands and great businesses that are one-billion-dollar businesses. And, that's, that's right. and, oh. and it doesn't mean that anybody failed. That's right. Well, and I'm not sure... All businesses are venture backable. 
That's right. I mean, there's some businesses that are probably better off not being venture backed or at least bootstrapping so for a long enough period of time before you realize what that for debt sure. looks like. And especially in consumer businesses, if it's inventory, for example, like there are efficient debt mechanisms to raise that capital instead of equity. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as you think about it as a founder, like there's there's all kinds of different choices you might make on how how you grow a business. And particularly in consumer goods, as I look around and see all of the ones you guys have here. It's expensive to build inventory, right? And you're building inventory in advance totally. of sales. So there are there are true reasons why you need outside capital. And what question sure. I always think about is yeah. like, what's the most efficient way and how do you want to build mm-hmm. what that would be. And what was your next journey after uh, after Montcloth? I took some time off and I thought I was gonna start something and I found this turned out to be like a crazy what looks like a crazy right hand turn and choose energy. So Kleiner had backed a really small team um, in sort of as Expedia as to travel, we were to energy. So half the U.S. population can choose who provides your power. Mm-hmm. Um, California, we're not one. We get PG&E here. Um, but I went in with, if you can consumerize energy, you can change the grid, right? If I could tell you it was a latte a month to go green, it's an easy choice. Mm-hmm. The reality of that's very difficult. Um, she doesn't, customers don't understand kilowatt hours. They don't understand what drives their bill. They mm-hmm. think the kids leave the lights on is why your bill goes up. Right. So if you change your energy provider in January and you save 20%, but then the next month in February, it's really cold and your heat's on all the time and you spend 30% more then your bill goes up and you get mad. Right. It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And it's also something that while people know they could do it, it's probably like number eight on the to-do list, probably like down there with, you know, rebalancing your 401k mm-hmm. on the should list. Of like, Oh, I should do that. But <laughs> like, right. it's not like, Oh, I right. gotta go do that tomorrow. Yep. Um, so it's a good business, but it was, you know, it's, it's a challenge to grow quickly. Uh-huh. Um, we had a good exit. We sold, uh, early 2017. Um, and I don't ever want to do energy again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it's, it's, it was still a great learning experience in terms amazing. of what, yeah. what do consumers actually, like, how do they think about what are they willing to spend time on right. and, and change right. in their life and. Well, I I think there is like that sense of like, oh, I can go do this. A lot of us get to like, oh, it'd be easy. And the reality is just it's really hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things I mean, obviously, we don't invest in the utility space. One of the 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 surveys that we talk about that we've talked about for a long time was around how sticky the pet category is. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the uh, the anecdotes we share is that folks would rather turn off their utilities than to change their their pet food. And it shows the stickiness of that right. category. And right. it goes to, to your point of like people just don't, you know, they're not passionate about their no. utilities. Well, and honestly, and, like when was the last time you looked at your bill? Like probably 10 years ago. And you look at it, it's five pages of like a whole bunch decipher. of mumbo jumbo. Of what, yeah. what is this thing? Yeah. And you just, just put it on auto pay. That's like right. I'm just going to put it over there. And they're like, okay, well, I have to pay it. But right. it's not That's something right. that you're actually going to invest time to learn about. Right. That's right. That's right. So it, it's, um, it, I think, you know, it's interesting to think about that industry and like, how do you make change there? I think it's slow. It's going to be slow. Yeah, that's right. And then how did you end up at Rothy's? So when I left after, after the sale, I spent some time doing a little of this and a little of that. Uh-huh. Um, I thought, you know, tried a little, um, I literally tried a little bit of everything. I invested here. I spent a day a week here, two days a week there. When I raised our series C at Modcloth, I met Jeremy Liu. He didn't, from Lightspeed, he didn't invest then, but he and I kept in touch. And so when he invested at Rothy's in early 2017, he'd ping me like, hey, will you come meet them? And I was still in the, I don't know what I want to do mm-hmm. path. Um, ping me again in October, like, will you go meet them? And Roth and Steven are um, the founders, obviously. Um, they are sort of my age. You know, Roth has four kids, Steven has two. Like, was not what I necessarily expected when you think about two men starting a women's shoe company. Mm-hmm. Um, well, just yeah. curious, what, what did inspire that? Like, a, it's such a great story. I'm just curious. Yeah. yeah. 
Like why, why are two men building women's shoes? Yeah. So back in 2012, um, sort of the beginning of the, you know, athleisure boom, right. Where the Marina is covered with women in Lululemon and, you know, right. they see their wives. Yeah. So Roth and Steven's wives were friends. They met through like a mommy and me. So forever ago, they're family friends. Um, so they both, I think said, you know, Hey, we could do something better here. Um, and I think both of them probably hit some sort of midlife crisis of like, if I don't leave investment banking in Stephen's case, or, you know, Roth had built this right. art gallery that was huge, but not necessarily growing and were, you know, and new, mm-hmm. they were like, well, let's go do something different together now. So they, um, they want to do something sustainable, right. And they want to do something beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so they went to China to figure out how shoes were made. And then they went and bought a factory in Maine. So like the last bastion of U.S. manufacturing for shoes is in Maine, mm-hmm. Lewiston, Maine. It's where the duck boot is made. It's yeah. where military boots are made. So like, okay, they're going to build it there. And they tried and they just couldn't get it to work. They like, you know, um, I think they spent over a year just like, how do we get this to work? And so they closed that down. Um, Roth basically moved back to China. He started like, you know, how do I figure out how to make the knitting work? So at a high level, the idea they had was if you could 3D knit the shoe instead of, um, you know, so when you make a normal shoe, you're cutting a circle out of a square. Yep. And so mm-hmm. you're leaving 30% of the leather or canvas behind. And if you knit it to shape, there's no waste. So, like, how do we do that? And then, oh, by the way, we can make it with plastic water bottles right. and how would that work? So right. developing the R&D on, like, how do we get the how do we get the the yarn to work the right way. So we're making shoes and sweater machines, right? So the machines we're using, you know, sweaters come out of them and shoes come out of them. And that R and D took them a long time. Yeah. Um, a long time. To and they had out. no background at no. all in this cat. Yeah. None. No, none. <laughs> Some people with midlife crisis, they buy sports cars for them. <laughs> Women's <laughs> shoes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that takes them to Maine and China. That's, exactly. that's pretty impressive. That's, that's right. Amazing. Yeah. They spent four and a half years before they had a product. Four and a half years, which wow. is more entrepreneurial, I yeah. think, than yeah. like, you know, I think we get a little biased in Silicon Valley of like, oh, you know, six months, we'll go raise some money, go, you know, these guys, like, they. Were they self funding during that time? They were self funded the whole Completely self funded. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. When, when was the first shoe sold? So in 2015, they had a shoe um, that they sampled and they um, they did a little pop up at the Ferry Building. They were the first mm-hmm. non food maker to ever be at the Ferry Building. Uh-huh. Um, they built this you know beautiful little pop-up there and they had women they you know let's see what happens and they had women like you know trading shoes on the ferry building floor and wow. they were like wow this is kind of interesting right um but the fit was wrong it's really hard to get fit yeah to, generally fit on on shoes is hard um we have a dead fit which is there's no laces right so the fit has to be perfect mm-hmm. and then because it's knitted there's even more complication to getting the fit right so they they sold a, a, you know, some, a small, yeah, that's right. 15, and then they shut it down. Let, let's figure out how to get it right. And some then, of our food companies started farmer's markets. You never uh, yeah, thought of us that it'd be a, exactly. a, a ferry building is a farmer's. Yeah. Exactly. A women's shoe company. That's right. yeah. yeah. Farmer's market was a great place for that's shoes. Really funny. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the sustainability story works well with the ferry building, right? So for from, sure. you know, what the ferry building farmer's market is about sustainability. So they like, okay, mm-hmm. we'll make an exception for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so they went back, retooled everything. And six months later, um, they built the website um, and put it, you know, sort of sent an email out to their 5,000 friends. You know, each of them had pretty different networks of one banking, one art, and, you know, got it on women's feet. And it's been off to the races since then. Did they always, was the perspective that they were always going to go in a different sort of route to market than traditional shoes? Either, whether it was going to be more sort of direct to consumer or own stores? Was that all figured out, or is that sort of a bit more organic? I think hindsight on all those things is you know twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, 
it always started with we're going to sell it ourselves first and Got we'll it. figure out where it goes from there. Got it. Um, you know, again, Shopify makes the world different. Of it's pretty easy to get a website going mm-hmm. and like how yep. do you how do you build how do you build this thing to test it and learn it? They were really smart about the way they hired. They hired a lot of consultants. Mm-hmm. Um, our first employees are just passing their two year mark now. Oh wow. Um, and we're two and a half years in on sales. So mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, it, it was an in- interesting path, I think different than also some with the way some companies are built, which yep. is let's go hire a huge staff. They, they didn't actually hire full-time employees until later on in the game. That's interesting. Yeah. And you had said before mod cloth, you had something like 50. Oh, we engin- had, we had 300 probably at, at peak, but, but something around 50 or so engineers, oh, at a, least, a good yeah. number. Right? Yeah. And then for these guys, how none. many engineers? None. None. Gotcha. We had outsourced dev, so it's true. We we used a we used a consulting firm to help us. You know how do we build the site and but no but no FTEs no FTEs. Wow, yeah. So when you joined the business, what did it look like? So I joined. um, So when I met them, I was like, "Look, you guys don't need me. You have this thing covered. Um, I'll help you part time." So I gave them half my time. They had twenty employees. Acquisition retention was being run part time by a consultant. Mm -hmm. I was like, "We need to hire that. (laughs) (laughs) How about we hire that role in?" Um, So in the I joined full time in February of 2018. Um, so now we're at about 70 employees. Um, so it's been a, a big scale. Oh wow! Yeah, um, building out the team, but the team is well built now. Like we mm-hmm. now we now we're sort of filling in the, the, the we have we have the right leadership team in place, which what is were, a good starting. What point. were the biggest holes? I mean, you, you just identified one when you when you were a consultant at the time. What were the other ones? There were holes everywhere. I mean, I think um, Roth has this analogy I love of bringing all of the dimmer switches up at the same time, which I think is like, it's hard, right? We own our own factory. We, we, you know, so when I started, the tracking links broke on our uh, holiday, our tracking links broke. So customer service got itself in this hole. We had three CS people and like, I don't want to scale CS here. So it's like, it depends. You sort of, it's a game of whack-a-mole when you're building a company of like, okay, CS is now broken. Like, let's go fix that. Right. Um, We hired... From a marketing side, I think that was probably the biggest place we hired, both on the growth side on acquisition retention as well as on the brand side of mm-hmm. how do we, you know, how, we had we had one overworked graphic designer doing <laughs> everything, right? We probably need a few more of those right. you know, as you build those things up. Um, we had no finance team, you know, a finance team of one and a half, you know, sort of as you think through, like yep. I think everything is a little bit of lots of places. Yeah. Um, versus, oh, we had huge holes everywhere. Makes sense. Curious. Um, obviously, these guys started in San Francisco. Um, I think it sounds like we're just, this is decidedly not necessarily a tech company. It seems it's more of a brand. How easy is it to actually be based in San Francisco? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I think there is a entrepreneurial mentality here that is hard to replicate, where people are willing to take risks and you know consult for businesses like Stephen and Roth found for mm-hmm. a period of time. Um, so the, the talent supply here is great. I also think the Levi's Gap, right? You know, infrastructure of people who know mm-hmm. how e-commerce works, know how merchandising works. Right. You know, our planner is this incredible human being who came from Levi's and he's got like, it's incredible. Like you take someone who's been trained well mm-hmm. and how to do something in a big way and like take them into a small environment. Same thing I had at Mogwath of, um, you know, one of the gap planners who, you know, without any systems around them can figure stuff out. Right. It's fantastic. Right? right. So there's, there's a, there's a piece here of like, it's an amazing place to build a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's actually in some ways probably more competitive to build a software company because, mm-hmm. you know, it's the land of, you know, a bajillion software companies right, that are right. all competing with each other right. where there's fewer of us doing mm-hmm. what we're doing. And tell us about the capital raising path that Rothy's has been on. So Stephen and Roth self-funded, um, and then they, they did a convertible note um, and then took in only institutional capital we've raised is um, we've had $5 million in. 
um, from Lightspeed, um, and that's it. That's it. That's it. Wow. We've been profitable since inception. That's um, and tend to con- like. I think about, we think about sustainability sort of beyond all of the measures of what we're doing in making shoes, but also from a company perspective, like we'll be measured in what we want to do in growth. Like I don't want to put ourselves on the treadmill of what is going to be. Let's do what we think is right and do it really well. Um, same thing from a culture perspective of like, this should be a place that all of us stay for 20 years, not, you know, what do we mm-hmm. do to build it, to turn it over. So people have lives and that's what we want to build is a place where people can stay for a long time and we can maintain that, you know, that growth. Do you feel pressure from the cohort of brands that, that Rothy's is a part of to, to drive towards an alternative model? I mean, brands like Glossier and others that have raised tremendous amounts of money. Do you feel pressure from that community? To, no. to do it differently? No. I think, um, I think we're going to do it the right, what we think is the right way for us. Um, and it's, you know, every, every brand I think might be different in what mm-hmm. they would think about. And I think if I were slack, losing money and making, you know, because you're trying to build like a habit. Right. That makes sense. Right? Yeah. We're not that. Yeah. I think, um, I think one of the lessons from ModCloth we talked about earlier is we raised too much money. I, you know, you look at fab.com, raised like $165 million and went to zero. You can put yourself in a mm-hmm. really crummy spot by raising too much money. It'll be interesting to watch what happens with my cohort of peers. Like, maybe mm-hmm. I'm wrong. Like, you know, maybe, maybe it's a place where we should have gone faster. And if we had raised more money, we could have hired a lot faster and grown faster. And I don't believe that to be true. Like, mm-hmm. I want to I hire people that for the long run that we love and think are the right people with us. And be thoughtful about the choices we're making. And I think that's one of the challenges that all startups face is how do you do a few things really well right. instead of trying to do 10 all at once. And were the founders, did they have the same mindset or is that something oh, yeah. more? Okay. I mean, that I think, you know, all comes from founders, but mm-hmm. the four and a half years of doing this self-funded. Right. It's a good starting point. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So they clearly valued capital efficiency. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And have you found that your existing investor base believes in that that our philosophy one, as our well. Our one investor, Jeremy. Yeah, right. yeah absolutely. He's he, he's fully aligned, and I think um, it's been a good partnership. He's been very helpful for us, and what you know, or what I think a great VC can do, and like asking the right questions, mm-hmm. and like helping and make the right introductions um, for talent and for you know various things we need. But I think we're all aligned on like we'll grow with the way we want to grow, and honestly, the business is growing very well right now. Um, so. You know, maybe, maybe at some point you you change your mind. I, right. I, I I don't see that anywhere in the near future. So currently, the, the continued path is using self using your, your self funding through your mm-hmm. profitability to continue mm-hmm. to expand. Mm-hmm. And, and what, we'll build direct consumer in stores. So we have one store here in Fillmore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been great. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll build some more stores, um, but we'll do it at a measured pace. Like I don't believe in. You know, I ran stores for a while at Levi's. Like, it's painful to be right. in the wrong place or to sign a ten-year lease. In the like, I want to do it in a very measured way mm-hmm. as well. Um, so, we'll, we'll continue to build out what we want to do as a company and as a team, and make those choices. And I think so. As we look forward, like retail's interesting. We'll do that in a measured way. International is also interesting because mm-hmm. I think she's the same woman in Shanghai as she is in San Francisco as she is in London. And mm-hmm. you know, we'd like to get there. Mm-hmm. And we'll be thoughtful about how we how fast we build those. What do you see? I mean. Rothy's obviously has a signature look in, in shoe and in the way you go about making them. Where do you, what, what do you see that expanding to as a brand? I think there's a lot of ways of thinking about um, both rethinking categories. So I think a lot of us were trained that like you have brown or black or white shoes. Like there's sort of the limit of what they are. And um, you may make trade-offs between like looking stylish and being comfortable. And I don't think those are, you know, so in the, in the world of that, um, I think there is, our, our customers come to know and love us for, 
for making those choices. And there are other categories that probably follow similar mm-hmm. similar paths. And then there's probably other silhouettes we're still short, short on. Like we started with the flat and the point. We had the loafer in um, September 20, um, 2018. Um, I'm sorry, in May. We added the sneaker in, um, in September. We launched kids in the middle of there. So there's we'll continue to roll out some new things, but mostly we want to do one thing really well. And mm-hmm. the flat and the point and the loafer and the sneaker now and like bring new colors really frequently. So we're dropping new colors every you know, three or four weeks-ish, sometimes faster, sometimes yep. slower. Um, and it's created a different world of how women are buying shoes. Like, mm-hmm. a, um, you know, we're in, we're out. Um, we always will have black. We'll always have some basics. Like our core basics are probably not, you know, the flame red or the um, the marigold yellow are also basics, which wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily assume right. to be basic. But those are things she'll come and know us for. We sell in half sizes, everything from 5 to 12 today. We're about to launch 13, 11, 12 and a half, 13. So you, know, you can think differently about how do you service who she is and what's important to her in a lot of different paths. I mean, five years from now, what do you think the mix of company-owned store sales versus e-com will be? What, what will it look like? Well, e-com will always be our biggest store. Um, mm-hmm. And I think... I think you're in the, you know, low, you know, in the twenties and thirties of stores, not in the hundreds of stores. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think they will be, you know, as we think about the global lifestyle brand, not, not shoes only. So I think you sort of start with this technology that we've built, um, that works really well for shoes and expanded to other areas. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to continue to like round out her closet. Do you think wholesale will be a big component of it at any point? I don't, I I don't think so. We've experimented a little bit. Um, I think, women want to try the shoe on, right? So if she's going to try the shoe on, there's interesting places that could happen. Um, I think we have a few challenges. One is I know every woman who's bought a pair of Rothy's and I don't want to lose that. I love the customer mm-hmm. intimacy yep. of knowing who she is mm-hmm. to, they tend to operate at a really slow, um, uh, time frame. So you're buying in January for on floor in August. And I have no idea in January what March looks like much less August. So there's just like, we're, we're operating at such a faster pace. It's hard to imagine. Like do we, how do we slow down? Right. What would that look like? Um, so I, we have enough growth in front of us right now that I'm going to, let's keep focusing on what we have in front of us. I'm not saying never, but, um, at, at in the long run is it's your earlier question. Like it'll be 90, 10, if it were anything, mm-hmm. it'll never be a, mean, a meaningful part of who we are because I, I want to maintain that customer relationship. And as a digital first business, how have you actually been able to kind of get the, the Rothy's name out there? Has it been more organic? Obviously, there's a component that's got to be through acquisition, but how do you think about that balance? Right. Um, word of mouth continues to be and hopefully will always be our largest source of traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, on a last click basis, like two thirds of our traffic is free. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, it starts with a beautiful shoe mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful shoe that's distinctive. And so we're spending a lot of money on Instagram and Facebook. It's not like, oh, well, you know, we don't, we're not spending we money. Right, yeah. Well, we absolutely are. Right. But it may be the third time that you've seen the ad that then you stop someone on the street and ask her about it. Um, and so I think about, you know, we're profitable on first transaction mm-hmm. with all of, um, all of the acquisition that we're doing. Um, and there's a halo that comes from, you know, a visually appealing shoe that then, you know, encourages you to ask other people about them. And, Mm -hmm. or there's like, we joke about patient zero in in an office, right? The first woman who buys them in the office. And then like, Mm -hmm. she's the, you know, her friends in the office, like, I like (laughs) that. And then they start spreading and then they get the second, then they get the fifth and then they get the sixth one. And then, oh, you know, that's a new color. So, um, there's a natural virality to the shoe itself, Mm -hmm. which is an odd thing to think about viral shoes, but there is a virality to Mm -hmm. the, the, the design is distinctive looking. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Carrie Cooper. 
Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can find us at unfinishedbiz.com, where we've also got links to subscribe for free in your podcast app of choice. Follow us on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page, and we'll keep you up to date on everything that's new. But now, let's get back to our episode with Rothy's president and COO, Carrie Cooper. For, let's just say for Rothy's, was there a bet the company moment for that business? I think, (laughs) poor Roth and Steven, I think um, if you go back to like closing the factory in Maine and moving to China, I think think Roth had some really trying moments in China of like, this isn't going to work and how do I get this to happen? Yeah. and then I think, you know, some of the bet the company things that happened past that are probably less bet the company and more like, how do we make sure we're making the right choices? So, mm-hmm. um, I'll give you a hard one that just recently happened. Um, we had a beautiful slide. So one of the things we're missing is a sandal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a slide that we'd made in our sample room and it was beautiful. We, we, we had some influencers with them and when we put them into production, the materials just did not scale the way mm-hmm. we needed them to. Um, and so on we were supposed to launch them on a monday and on sunday um we called we pulled it and was um, there was there sort of marketing already built up was oh, yeah. there no, people we had, people were expecting we the, it we had, we had some of the most beautiful photography i'd ever seen for that like you know our creative director had gone to spain and like we had it was beautiful photography mm. we had emails that were ready to i mean we had it was ready like this thing was going to go yeah. um but you know if one in a hundred are bad it's going to kill the brand. Yeah. And it wasn't one in a hundred. It was actually more like 10 in a hundred, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. If, right. Like, you know, um, it's the beauty of having a store, you know, mm-hmm. like we went right. and merchandise the store. Like these are not okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went and did some, you know, it, it, I hope that failures like that are just lessons to make all of our quality better. Mm-hmm. Um, so Roth and the team have all spent a lot of time back with, you know, we own our own factory in China. So it's not like, I think in a, in a traditional, you know, most of our competitors are like working in contract manufacturing. You mm-hmm. fire the factory. Like, you know what? Forget it. You, you, that's not okay. Um, but for us, because, you know, there are work colleagues, it's like, okay, let's talk about what went wrong. Like, right. you know, it was it the QC guy's fault. Was it the materials guy's right. Like, where, where was the fault? And like, of course, it's all of our fault, right? Because mm-hmm. it didn't work. But how do we get better next time? Right. And how do we make sure that we are raising the alarm bells earlier, that we're making sure the calendar works and not feeling rushed, that we are, you know, driving those kinds of changes through? Mm-hmm. So, I know it hasn't been a tremendous amount of time to date at Rothy's, but is there a particular high point that that really stands out, that really validates the the choice that you made to, to join the company? You know, every um, I, I have the greatest job in the world. Like I'm, I'm so lucky. This has been such a, a serendipity or whatever it is that that I get to. Um, you know, every month continues to grow in a way that you know March was bigger than December. Mm-hmm. Um, when we crossed 25 million water bottles repurposed, it was a big celebration point of you know I think every day of like how do we make this with everyone we're selling we're continuing to you know make that a, a better place, mm-hmm. which is great. Unlike you know you can sell more big screen TVs, but it's not a big screen TV. <laughs> this, right. this feels good. Right. Um, when Meghan Markle wore the shoe, um, it was. It was amazing. You know, it was one of those, like, you know, now it's like the gift that keeps giving because sure. now, now you also get the reference with people magazine says, right. you know, like Megan Markle approved shoe or, you know, we were on the today show a few weeks ago of like, you know, well, this is one Megan Markle. Wore. <laughs> How did she get the shoe? Do you guys know? No idea. You can't gift Royals, but, um, she found them on her own. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Well, yeah. hallelujah. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. in a world of high point. Exactly. Like, yeah, like just, exactly. Yeah. Completely organic. Yeah. So I had no idea that Meghan Markle can't be gifted things. I honestly thought that was one of the nice perks about being a royal. I guess I guess not. <laughs> I guess that's something I can't aspire to to be anymore. I know. But in all seriousness, uh, I think some of the most interesting parts of Carrie's journey was uh, her time at Modcloth. And 
it's at the, at the end of the day a dress company that was trying to be a tech company and they capitalized themselves accordingly and built this massive tech team where they raised money, uh, they raised round after round of capital and then they felt like they had to live up to that and ultimately just led to some some dynamic of disappointment. Yeah, and I honestly, just taking those learnings and actually putting those into Rothy's, you can kind of see everything that she's learned, which is more, she recognizes that this is a consumer brand, not necessarily a tech company and all the decisions are aligned with that in terms of how they're capitalized, in terms of how they're run. So even thinking about, you know, being profitable on first purchase, I mean, that is very refreshing to hear. And like so many of our guests based in the Bay Area, Carrie feels pretty lucky to live here. I have um, teenagers that want me less and less, so <laughs> as much time as they'll let me spend with them. Um, You're a volleyball expert. And I spend a lot of time watching volleyball. Mm-hmm. My daughter plays volleyball, so we travel a lot to do volleyball. We were talking offline. She was explaining everything that I didn't know about about volleyball. I feel so much more uh, educated on that front. So thank you for that. Absolutely. <laughs> so you ready for our signature game, Carrie? Ready. 60 seconds. Don't overthink it. First thing that comes to mind. Okay. Ready to go? Ready to go. All right. What is your guilty pleasure? I exercise every morning. I love to exercise. Okay. Quite- this, would you rather be able to speak to any animal or speak in any foreign language? Oh, speaking any foreign language. I wish I could speak Chinese. What's your favorite book? I just finished. Re- well, I, I have lots. I read. I read a book a week at least. Um, I think um, I just finished reading. I was just when I just finished reading was "Tell Me More" by Kelly um, Kelly Corgan. That's really good. Cool. If you could meet any historical figure, who would it be? Martin Luther King. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Morning. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? I want to blink myself somewhere. Like I want to blink myself and be at dinner with my friends. And I DC. like that. That's Read great. a book or watch a movie. Read a book. Uh, high five or fist bump. Fist bump. If you could eat only one type of food for the rest of your life, what would you eat? Vegetables. What's your favorite consumer brand that's not your own? Peloton. As a kid, what did you want to do when you grew up? I wanted to be a flight attendant for a long time. Uh, celebrity crush. Oh, uh, Matt Damon. Favorite way to unwind after a long day? Put my feet up on the couch and have a glass of wine. Pet peeves? Being late. What was your first job? At mowing lawns. Last concert you went to? Pink. Hmm. Listen to podcasts or music? Podcasts. Favorite vacation you've been on? Argentina. Who would play you if there's a movie of your life? Ooh. Uh... Sandra Bullock. Well, the last question, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? I think there's probably some level of um, just don't give up. Um, that there's a life which is, you know, every day I think you hit these moments of like, oh my God, this is not going to work. And um, the best businesses are those where like you just keep pushing forward. And even if it requires a few pivots along the way, don't give up. That's great advice. Well, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG Partners. And now a word from our lawyers. 
This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses, and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.